Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. It says, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, Rejoice. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. This is what Easter is all about. The resurrection, the empty tomb. I was watching a few months ago a documentary um, on one of those hard rock bands, the heavy metal bands. Uh, I think the name of it, I think the band's name was Metallica. But they had an album cover that they were going to put out and then they pulled it because I guess they felt it was too controversial. But the album cover said, Cancel Easter, the body's been found. Now, obviously, that was a mock on Christianity, but they would have been correct if that was true. If Jesus' body was found after the crucifixion, they would have had to cancel not only Easter, but also Christmas. Why would we celebrate his birth if he was a fraud? He said over and over and over again, I will rise from the dead. So I certainly wouldn't be wasting my time here, neither would you. But it was in the best interest for many powerful people to destroy Christianity. The religious leaders were losing their constituent base, and the Roman Empire had a sect that was growing that refused to give homage or adoration to anyone or anything but the risen Christ unto death. I've got to tell you, I've read a lot of extra-biblical criticism, um, literature, criticisms of Christianity, and do you realize nobody in history has claimed to produce the dead body of Christ? And, even more amazing, nobody has tried this, to get a corpse and pretend it was Christ and say, here, look, he was a charlatan. See, he didn't rise from the dead. It's almost as if the world accepts that they can't stop the resurrection. Had, there's been 2,000 years of people who could have tried to do this, and no one has ever done it. So the world accepts it because they can't stop it. Remember, Joseph of Arimathea in Matthew 22, or Matthew 23, excuse me, he was well known in the community for he was a council member. He put Jesus' newly murdered body in his own tomb, hewn out of the, out of the mountain, and he, everyone knew where it was, including Rome, because they had a contingent of guards set in front of the tomb for the sole purpose of not having the disciples sneak in there and steal the body, right? This is recorded in Matthew 27. So if Jesus was a fraud, these powerful forces should have had no problem in producing the body, immediately reversing the growth of Christianity. As a matter of fact, Roman historians, I've read works of Josephus, Flavius, Tacitus, Thallus, and there's many more, all attest to Jesus and the resurrection in some way. As a matter of fact, many people have tried to disprove Jesus and his claims. There was a book, uh, the author's name is Stan Telchin, called Betrayed. Very interesting book. Guy, he was a Jewish family. His daughter goes to college. She received Jesus as, Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And he's like, what do you mean? We're Jewish. There's no way that you could be a Jewish and believe in Jesus at the same time. So he was out to disprove what she would believe in now. And through his quest to disprove what she believed, he became a Christian himself. It's amazing, isn't it? And there's a lot more stories like that. There's many books that have been written by former atheists who have set out to disprove the resurrection, did their homework, started digging in ancient documents, and realized it, it is what it is. <laughs> you know, it can't stop it. So I might as well fall in line and believe it, right? But in, in the book of Acts, chapter 5, remember Gamaliel, the notable Pharisee, he said to his followers, he said, some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be the Messiah, this man named Thutis. And when he was slain, his followers dispersed, and the sect came to nothing. He also said in the days of the census, when Judas of Galilee claimed the same thing, 
he met the same fate and his followers also departed. Does anybody know of a Thutis or Judas religion? I never heard of one. Because as soon as the leader was struck, they all scattered and they came to nothing. So logic would tell us that these early century Christians would have also abandoned the faith if, in, in a case of intense persecution, if the body of Jesus was found. Why would you give your, your life for a lie? That's ridiculous. People don't want to give their lives for good causes. So why would somebody give their lives for a fraud? Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So let's talk a little bit about the resurrection and what happened afterwards. How many people know, just I've got to keep you, you know, awake here, how many people know uh, by show of hands that Jesus had a 40-day post-resurrection ministry? 40-day. Okay, that's good. And what's the reason for this? Because without the resurrection, there would be no church. People had to see Jesus, to touch him, and to converse with him. So when the brutal Roman persecution came, they wouldn't waver in their faith. Now, how many parents would say anything or do anything to save their children from harm or death? Raise your hand. (laughs) I'm trapping you. I did this a few weeks ago with judging. I guess it's the cop in me, that entrapment thing. I don't know. But in the Roman Colosseum, they would take, and this is, this is fact, this is all the annals of the Roman history, you can research this if you need to, but they would take Christian children and dress them in sheepskins and send them out into the Colosseum and let them play in the middle. And they would have ferocious dogs, lions, you know, tigers and bears, uh, standing by in cages, and they would tell their parents, listen, if you deny Jesus, we'll free them. And they didn't. If you, if you deny Jesus... We'll let them go. And they didn't. So many children died in those days. Now, the only logical reason for this parent's behavior is if they knew beyond any doubt that Jesus, that the resurrection was true and that there would be a better life for them and their children in the afterlife. So let's let's go back to the Bible and see what it tells us about the resurrection and what happened afterwards. The Bible tells us that the women were the first to see the risen Christ. Right, And in John 20, we find that Peter and John visit the empty tomb. Now turn your Bibles to Luke 24. Luke 24, 13 through 32. It says, Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that, he, that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, verse 27, I love it. Starting in Moses and all the prophets, he expounded the scriptures, explained to them the events leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. The best way to lead a Jewish person to Jesus, to their beloved Messiah, is through the Old Testament. There's well over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament to choose from to show that Jesus was their beloved Messiah. Verse 28, Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is evening, and the day is far spent. 
and he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us? So my question to you is, does your heart burn within you when the word of God is open to you? God's word is the ultimate authority, and it has to be. Logic would tell us that there has to be a standard, because then people would say, you ever hear people say, well, God told me this and God told me that, right? They're always saying that God told them something. But there has to be a rule, a standard, to take what you think you've heard from God in prayer and put it up against. One thing that God will never do to you is he will never tell you something that's not, that goes contrary to what he's already established in Scripture. So if you believe that God has told you something, you better make sure you check it with Scripture. And if it goes against it, goes against it then you didn't hear from God. Um, I'm going to go back to John. I'm going to go through a few of these that I think pretty much there's a chronology, but some of these overlap uh, you know, other portions of Scripture. So go to John 21, 1 through 14. John 21. He said, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, which is also the Sea of Galilee. And in this way, he showed himself Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We are going with you also. Then they went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now here's another good reason for Jesus' post-resurrection ministry. The boys are going back fishing. Kind of sound familiar? When Jesus met them, they couldn't catch anything. Now they can't catch anything again. But, you know, for you guys who like to fish, fishing's not a bad thing. It can be very relaxing. It can be time to unwind. Except if a church needs to be established. So these guys need a little bit of motivation to do God's work. My question to you is, do you need a little bit of motivation? And the question is, if you're off the track, if you've gotten off the track about doing God's will, what has gotten you off the track? It's usually something. It could be success-driven. You're so success-driven that you think that you just have maybe 10, 20 years of your life left and don't realize that it's, it's not something that you should be over-focusing on. What about an impure relationship? Sometimes something like that will definitely get you off the track because you're thinking about another person much more than you're thinking about God. And also focus on self. That's usually the big one. And a lot of these actually can be categorized in focusing on yourself. You're thinking about yourself and you're not being concerned about doing God's will. Verse, verse 7, I'm sorry, verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard it, that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Impetuous Peter, I love this guy. He takes off his garment and he just plunges into the water. If there's hope for him, there's hope for all of us. But we continue. It says, verse 8. But the other, I'm sorry, verse 9. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Okay, turn to Luke. I'm going to have you going back and forth a little bit in the Gospels. Turn to Luke 24 again.
starting with verse 36. Luke 24, verse 36. It says, now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. This is very, very important. The resurrected Christ was not a ghost or an angel, as the Jehovah Witnesses charge. The word for bone in the Greek is ostia. Does that sound familiar? Osteoporosis. Uh, you know, in, in medical terms, an osseous growth means a bony growth. So ostia is bone, literal bone. Okay, continuing on. It says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marvel, they said, he said to them, have you any food here? So he gave them a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witness of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from high. So this is why we share our faith, because there is no remission of sins without a blood sacrifice. Leviticus 17.11, for those of you who are familiar in the Old Testament, God said sin is so disturbing to him and so offensive and so keeps us from fellowship with him that there must be a life for a life. Blood must be shed to remove sins. In the Old Testament, they did sacrifices, but Jesus came as that perfect spotless lamb that died for our sins. His blood was shed once and for all so that we would have everlasting life. And that is why we share our faith. Don't let the, the politically correct movement, unfortunately it's, it's a cancer that's permeating churches. Oh, don't share your faith. You know, let everybody be. No, let everybody be. Let them go to hell. We need to share our faith. They need to do their homework. We need to say things that get them, even if they get upset with you, maybe it'll cause them to do their own research and not be lazy. To know that Jesus died for their sins. And without the shedding of blood, without Jesus' death on the cross, there is no remission of sins. We're just dead in our sins. Let's turn to Acts 1. Now, this is Luke writing. I'm sorry, this is um, right, Luke writing. He wrote Luke and Acts. And Acts appears to be a continuation of the book of Luke's. So this is what Luke says here. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, he asked, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. This is important. It is not for us to know. Too many organizations and too many in the name of Christianity have, been, have tried to predict the end of the world or Christ's coming and failed miserably. Obviously, we're still here, so the end hasn't come. You'd be surprised how many uh, dozens of times, how many hundreds of times people have tried to predict the end of the world. And you know what? Logically, it also makes Christians look nutty when people do that. The end of the world is coming in 2000. 2000 comes and goes, we're still here. So it's, it's a thing that, number one, the Bible forbids, but also for logic's sake, it's, it's ridiculous. 
And you, you've heard that expression, a, lot, a big hindrance to people coming to Christ is sometimes what they say, see in Christianity. Remember, if you predict something, you make a prophecy. If you make a prophecy, especially of that magnitude, you make yourself a prophet. Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18 prescribes punishment for someone who makes a prophecy that doesn't come true. Death. Why? Because if you really speak from God, if God is, you know, when he spoke to the prophets, everything that they said would come true. Why? Because God sees the end from the beginning. He has bound us to time, but God is not bound by time. So God knows what's going to happen today, tomorrow, and 100 years from now. He knows when the Lord is going to return, and he's not telling us. So the thing is, if somebody came on the scene and predicted something and it didn't come true, even if they predicted a thousand prophecies and the thousandth one did not come true, then they, they were not sent by God. It's of their own doing. And many men, which were heads of so-called Christian organizations over the years, have tried to predict the end of the world. Now, I believe that God doesn't want us to know when the end is coming because of disingenuous conversions. What would we do now if we knew for sure and God said to us, tomorrow the end is coming? You know, you're gonna, you can live out today, Easter, Sunday, and then at 12.01 the Lord is going to return and for those who have not come to the Lord, there's going to be judgment. Well, what would happen? Well, probably what would happen is most of the world would, would live however they wanted to and then a few minutes before they would get down on their knees and ask for forgiveness for their sins. That's not genuine. So that's one of the reasons I believe that God does not want us to know when the end is to come. He wants us to live the true Christian life every day. It's a life of obedience. It reminds me of that parable of the servants who, uh, who the master leaves, and he leaves them together, and they start you know, drinking and beating each other up and doing crazy stuff, but they don't know when the master is going to return. You know, God wants us to live righteously, and then when he returns and sees that we're living righteously, he says, well done, thy good and faithful servant. So continuing on, verse 8, he says, But you shall receive power when, you, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witness to, to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So verse 8, ten days from his ascension, okay, he was, was resurrected, he's on the earth for 40 days, right? And then he ascends into heaven. Ten days from his ascension into heaven, the disciples are baptized with the Holy Spirit on the Feast of Pentecost. In the Old Testament, it was also known as the, the Feast of First Fruits. Jesus was killed on the, on the Passover celebration to commemorate the slaying of the, uh, of the lamb, that the blood of the lamb was put on the doorpost, remember, in the Old Testament, and uh, the blood protected them. So when Jesus was killed, it's symbolic. On Passover, uh, you know, the, the death passed over them. And the same thing with Jesus. If you're covered under the blood of Christ, eternal death can't touch you because you're covered under that blood. So ten days later after his ascension, the Feast of first fruits, okay, uh, the Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was given to the disciples. Verse 9. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will also come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now, this is an interesting t thing too, because in a, in a, not to pick on the Jehovah Witness organizations, but actually a lot of scripture that we're covering will, will counteract a lot of the false gospel that they had put out. No, number one, not only with false prophecies, but also in the manner that Jesus was going to return. One of their last false prophecies, they're saying that Jesus, you know, they didn't learn. It started in the late 1800s, in the early 1900s, and 1970, I believe, was their last false prophecy that didn't come true. And then they said, well, he didn't return. It must have been invisibly. He must have come invisibly, so he's really here, but we can't see him. But according to the scripture, his return can't be missed. When he comes, it's not going to be in secret. 1 Thessalonians 4:16 and 17 says, through 18 says, for the Lord himself, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will meet them with the Lord in the clouds of the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. So it's going to be pretty, a lot of, you know, 
a shout with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. It's going to be very, very obvious to especially Christians. Okay, I'm going to have you turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 6. Sorry to do this to you, but for those of you who, are not, who I'm not going to see again until Christmas, I want you to have as much scripture as you can possibly get. <laughs> There's a method to my madness. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 6. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You are saved if you believe the gospel, period. It kind of reminds me, too, Jesus spoke about when Moses, a type of the resurrection, a type of you know, looking on the cross, a type of looking at Jesus and believing his sacrifice and what he did for us. There was a time in the Old Testament when the children of Israel were bit by all these serpents. Uh, it was a deadly bite that they would receive. And God told Moses to take a pole and to take a, 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 a fashion formulation of a bronze serpent and lift it up on the pole. And all the children of Israel had to do was look at that serpent and believe that that was the way for them to be well and they would look at that serpent, and the snake bites wouldn't harm them. But wouldn't you know it, there were some people who just refused to look at that serpent, and they died. It's just a picture of how stubborn we can be as human beings. So if you believe in the gospel, you are saved, period. Verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And this is the gospel. Again, it's not a endless, salvation is not an endless board game of, you know, giving money, doing good works, church attendance, um, you know, all these things. It's not like the game of life. Remember that game, it had to be like 15, 20 years ago, the game of life. It was a board game and you would go across it and, you know, you would hit a card that said, oh no, college tuition. And you'd have to go back three spaces. Remember that game? But, you know, I think about that too. Oh no, I sinned. Go back five spaces. No. That is covered under the blood. If you're truly sorry for that sin, you've given it to the Lord, you're covered. Jesus paid for that 2,000 years ago. Verse 5. And that he, Jesus, was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. And that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And that's a euphemism for those who have died. I said before, the reason why Christianity survived in the face of persecution was the resurrection. So if you wanted to destroy Christianity, what would you attack? The resurrection. You'd attack the deity of Christ. You'd attack the basic tenets of the Christian faith already established in Scripture. I want to discuss three recent media things that have, stories that have come up, coincidentally, at the time that we celebrate Christmas, or Easter. So there's three of them. One... Actually, this one I'm just going to touch on, but I'll probably come back to it at a later date. Supposedly, they found another transitional man. You know, the ape men, half, you know, the ape over millions and millions of years becomes a man, and somewhere in between is kind of half and half, right? These silly scientists, they tried that before. Remember Java man, Ramapithecus, Piltdown man, Neanderthal man, Nebraska man, Lucy. Remember all that stuff, right? Now, if you really research it, you'll find that these fit into basically three categories. One was purp purposeful hoax. Another one was a nutritional deficiency, which I, I think all well, that was uh, Neanderthal man. They found out later that he had rickets, and that's why he was hunched over. So they, seriously, it's, it's kind of silly. You know, to, how much can you learn from a set of bones when there's so many factors that are involved? There's tendons, there's nerves, there's uh, the body structure, and you're basically getting just a set of bones. And you could kind of move those bones around, the jaw. When I'm talking, my jaw is going all over the place. There's muscles. There's, you know, God made an amazing set of uh, framework within the mouth itself, right? So the uh, other thing was just outright errors because, uh, let's see, Java Man was a situation where they collected bones over the course of a year, and it was done in a 50-foot radius or 50-foot diameter. And what happened was, you know, they would say, would attribute it to, 
they would have problems with these, you know, trying to put these bones together. And what they would say was their excuse for why the bones were all over the place is they would say that there was a lot of localized floods. Heavy flooding, but localized. Now, you, you know where I'm going with this one, right? They don't want to say that there was a worldwide flood because that would give credence to the biblical account. So what they were saying, coincidentally, all over the world at the same time, there was localized floods, but not a, not a worldwide flood. You know, don't, don't want to do that. So, you know, a lot of these things, if you really research it, of course, the, you don't get much media attention when they find out that they're hoaxes. So a novel, what is a novel? Well, before I say that, what is this book not? It doesn't claim to be a documentary. It doesn't claim to be a testimony, and it doesn't claim to be historical. You know, and I always love to do this. Go back to the dictionary. If you're not sure what something is, what's a novel? The dictionary says it's long fictional prose narrative. And what is fictional? It's a make, makings up of imaginary happenings or feignings. In other words, if you were a kid, you would have your imaginary friend or the Easter Bunny, right? But this is basically a, a figment of Dan Brown's imagination. And let's, let's um, Josh, if you could put the Last Supper on the board, on the uh, screen. The Da Vinci Code. Josh is going to put up the, uh, the Last Supper. And one of the premises is that Leonardo, da, Leonardo da Vinci, um, he basically, in his Last Supper, he, there's some codes to his picture. And you can get some meanings behind the picture. Um, and supposedly, let's take my pointer out here. Supposedly, this is supposed to be Mary Magdalene, right? Now, again, this is Leonardo da Vinci's picture, and let's let's talk a little bit about this picture. Um, the first thing is that Jesus supposedly wanted to head the church, or wanted Mary Magdalene to head the church, but a male-dominated church suppressed this. Okay, this is the conspiracy. It's like a conspiracy book. Now, I wanted to digress for a little bit. If you look up, or you, you follow history, and you, even if you look it up in the encyclopedia, who was Leonardo da Vinci? Well, he was a 15th century artist, sculptor, architect, engineer, and scientist. He was a brilliant guy. But... What you won't find about him is he wasn't a historian, he wasn't a Bible scholar, and he wasn't a theologian. So even if the premise was true about some of the codes in the picture, he, you know, he wouldn't have the authority to make those claims. But again, it's all speculation. History doesn't uh, prove any of this anyway. Um, I just want to read John 13. If you flip to John 13, we're going to talk a little bit about the Last Supper, the positioning of the disciples, uh, what they were eating, all that kind of stuff. John 13:21 It says when Jesus had said these things he was troubled in spirit and testified and said most assuredly I say to you one of you will betray me then the disciples looked at one another perplexed about whom he spoke now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he whom I shall have give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, after the piece of bread... Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, whatever you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. So a few things about what we're going to talk about is in those days, you see here by the 15th century, I guess, chairs and tables were common. But in those days, uh, back to the time of Jesus, they would recline. They would be at a table and they would kind of recline on like a pillow and they would file against each other, I'd be laying down and maybe somebody would laying down behind me. So if it was John and Jesus, he could, as he's laying down, he could lean on his bosom as he spoke to him, right? So it was more of a reclining position. It, this is not accurate. It wasn't a seating position. And they would, they would be filed. The other thing is the arrangement um, of the table. Now, it's well known that what they, in those days they had what was called, and you could look it up in the dictionary, it's called a triclinium. It's a special table that instead of having a long table like this, what would be is maybe three people 
um, or four people would fit in a section this big, and then this table would actually go at a 90 degree like that, and this table would do the same. So people on this side and this side could actually look at each other. So it was a triclinium, it was a three-section table. And the other thing is, again, the arrangement between Peter, Judas, John, and Jesus. You get the impression that Peter was sitting across from Jesus because Peter motions to Jesus, who is it? Who is it, Lord? Who's the one who's betraying you? And, you know, it appears that Jesus was next to John and Judas because John leans back on Jesus' breast, asks him the question, and he said, it's the one that I dip in the dish. So Jesus dips in the dish with, and it had to be somebody who was close to him. So probably the arrangement was John, John and Judas were flanking Jesus, and Peter was kind of at the far end of the table. Now, that makes a lot of sense because Peter kept putting his foot in his mouth. He was so impetuous. He kept reacting quickly. Maybe by the time of the Last Supper, Peter realized, I, be, I just better calm down. I'm always getting rebuked by the Lord. So he probably took a spot at the end of the table, at the, seriously, at the, at the third part, so it, he could try to actually start to act humble, right? So the scripture's awesome because it all makes sense. Um, another thing is, I was at a Passover Seder on Friday night. Had a great time. Do you see any evidence of a Passover Seder? A Passover Seder, remember Jews for Jesus, they came. It was it, Actually, they didn't, yeah, he had that big dish. It was a tremendous dish, and it was cordoned off to put different elements in. All right? It wasn't a, a necessarily an eating table, but it, it had the Seder. It had the, you know, the elements in it. Basically, what you see here is you see food on the table and different dishes. And if you look at this, there's no sections right, to hold the bread or whatever. Another thing is, um, look at the bread. That's leavened bread. <laughs> the Passover celebration had unleavened bread. They would most likely be eating matzahs, and they certainly wouldn't be eating fish. Okay? So I know what this is. This isn't... You know, this isn't the Passover here in Leonardo's picture, but, you know, I, I think I know what this is. This, what reminds me, it comes to my mind being Italian, is this is the Italian Christmas Eve fish dinner at Uncle Louie's house, right? <laughs> Forget about it. <laughs> so, you know, Leonardo was painting a picture to his paisans so they all could understand, right? Now, so now you're going to, you're going to, tell me or ask me, again, there's no historical evidence to, to believe that da Vinci had any codes to his picture or any of his works, right? But, you know, even if he did, which it's, it's doubtful, why would I believe any of it based on his, you know, inconsistencies in, in what he's doing here? Now, I mean, we could talk about the book and we could talk about a few things, but it's, it's not... One more thing I want to discuss is the attack on the divinity, the divinity of Christ. In the Da Vinci Code, there's a fictional uh, conversation between two of the characters. And they speak of an actual church council, the Council of Nicaea. There was different church councils, Council of Nicaea, Council of Hippo, Council of Carthage. There's many of them. The actual church council of Nicaea was 325 A.D. Now, what happened was 318 bishops from all over the known world, from Africa, from Europe, from the Middle East, they all came together and met at this council to, number one, counter the false doctrine of Arianism, among other things. They also adopted the Nicene Creed. If some of you have heard the Nicene Creed. Now, Arianism, or Arius, okay, comes from the guy Arius, is basically a heresy that says that Jesus wasn't divine. Now, this was a, a recycled heresy that departed for a while and then came back in vogue within the last 200 years and is adopted by Jehovah's Witnesses again and the Unitarians. But in the Da Vinci Code, the characters uncover a conspiracy to elevate uh, Jesus to divinity, and one of the ways that it happens is through this vote at the Nicene Council you know, um, meeting. And they said it was a close vote. So now you have a bunch of bishops, 318, voting on whether Jesus is divine or not. Okay? Let's just say 318. Let's say you're all bishops here. And if you probably took all the servants, you'd probably have about 318 people here today with the service. Well, let's say we took a vote on Jesus' divinity. Probably most all of you would um, you know, say that he is, but for argument's sake, what would be a close vote? 160 say he is, and 158 say he's not? We would divide the auditorium. Sure, that is a close vote. But do you want to know what the actual Nicene vote was, this close vote? It was 316 to 2 apostate bishops. So... You know, is that close? Again, that's, that's a man's imagination. But it's also, it's also a lie, right? 
Now, the book is fiction, but why take a, a stab at the heart of, of the Christian faith, the, the divinity of Christ? Uh, it, it's like he kind of makes lies with the actual events that happen. Do you know what a good liar does? They take 98% of the truth and mix about 2% of lies with it to further their agenda. Now, if I had you come over to my house and I said, you know, we're going to have steak dinner, and we have about like 10, 10 steaks lined up, and I said, you know, I, I misplaced the arsenic shaker with the, with the pepper shaker, and by accident I, I, I sprinkled the arsenic on the steaks that we're going to eat tonight, but pretty much I got most of it off. And it's about 2% arsenic. Would you eat those steaks? <laughs> would, you, would you subject those steaks to your kids? I didn't think so. When you do that, it's, it's, it's discipled after Satan. A bad liar is somebody who just sends out blatant lies. A good liar is somebody who, who takes a little bit and poisons most, most of the truth. And eventually people get tripped up. I believe the truth always comes out. Now going back to the police field, the more we get a suspect to talk, the better it is for us to get a confession. Even Proverbs 10:19 says that, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but a wise man restrains his lips. Do you want to know the secret of beating a traffic ticket? <laughs> it's no, it's not getting a radar detector. And no, it's not getting a PBA card. But the answer is don't lie. As cops, we're lied to all the time, and we get tired of hearing people lie to us. It's like when we come to a call, it's almost like you'd see the wheels turning in people thinking about how they're going to lie to us, Right? But honestly, if I pull somebody over and they tell me the truth about exactly what they have done, usually I won't even walk back to my car. I'll give them their stuff back and say, have a nice day. Because it's refreshing to hear the truth from people. So, okay, uh, the third thing that I just wanted to discuss is another, uh, you know, attack or something that you could say came out recently is this Gospel of Judas thing, right? Uh, National Geographic bought into this one hook, line, and sinker. If you log on to National Geographic's website, our webpage, you'll find that they make no bones about saying that the Gospel of Judas is a Gnostic work. And they also try to link, they marry the Gnosticism with Christian. It's a Gnostic Christian work. Now, the premise here is that Jesus and Judas had a secret arrangement on the betrayal. And that um, if you unlock hidden knowledge, it changes your biblical view. Everything you've learned, Christians, is good. But when you, when you learn more about this, this Gnostic, this hidden knowledge you can really unlock the Bible and understand it better. But Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which just means knowledge. This is also a heresy that existed prior to Christ. Now, when Christianity came along, Gnosticism tried to assimilate itself or amalgamate itself with Christianity, right? And it stated that the hidden knowledge obtained would make you a spiritual elite. So the more you knew about the hidden knowledge and the secrets of the Bible, you would be elevated in your Christianity. Now, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus actually said, people need to come to me like children. They need to come to me not knowing it all, but like a little child. Master, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? You know, we, we were wondering, who can sit on your right hand and left? Jesus goes to find a child, picks the child up. Imagine that little kid picks the little kid up, puts him in the midst of all these adults. It must have made them feel really silly. You know, you have to be like a child, you know, in your attitude and your, your mannerisms. And this is what I'm looking for. So, um, this is also said, Gnosticism also said that matter was evil, so that it denied the incarnation of Christ. It didn't believe that Jesus actually took a physical body while he was on earth, because all matter was evil, and all spiritual was good. So, and the biblical writers, and also, you know, Paul and John and Peter, they all, Jude, all try to root out this Gnosticism, and the first through fourth century uh, fathers, like Irenaeus, also tried to root it out, Irenaeus of Lyons. So, and, and John Baer covered Gnosticism a little bit, um, or a little bit more in depth two weeks ago in his Wednesday night study. I just want to read to you a few articles, and then we'll kind of wrap things up. Actually, I got this from, there's two articles, one from foxnews.com and one from MSNBC. All right, foxnews.com, about the Gospel of Judas. The title reads, Biblical Expert, colon, Gospel of Judas, Probably Bunk. James M. Robinson, uh, Robinson, America's leading expert on such ancient religious texts from Egypt, predicts in a new book that the text won't offer any insights into the disciple who betrayed Jesus. His reason? While it's old, it's not old enough. Does it go back to Judas? No, Robinson told the Associated Press. 
The text in Egypt's ancient Coptic language dates from the 3rd or 4th century is a copy of an earlier document. Reading excerpts from it. And then he goes on to say that this Irenaeus person that I was spoken, spoke about before, Irenaeus of Lyons, A.D. 180, Irenaeus said the writings came from a Canaanite Gnostic sect that jousted against Orthodox Christianity. So you have National Geographic saying that it's Gnosticism and, and Christianity can be merged, and now this uh, uh, leading textual um, critic is saying that, this expert is saying that, no, that's not true. Uh, what it says down here, it says, he speculated the timing of the release of the Gospel of Judas is aimed at capitalizing on interest in the film version of The Da Vinci Code, a fictional tale that centers on a Christian conspiracy to cover up a marriage between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. There are a lot of 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century Gospels attributed to various apostles, Robinson said. We don't really assume they give us any 1st century information. Now here's interesting, towards the end of the article, it says that this guy Stephen Emmel of the University of Munster in Germany Emil got a glimpse of the text but didn't know it was the Gospel of Judas till years later. He, told the original, he was told the original asking price was $10 million, but it could be obtained for $3 million, an impossibly high figure for the interested Americans. And I actually found through a recent article that it's down now to $1 million, so they can't get rid of this thing. It started out as $10 million, it went down to $3 million, now it's at $1 million they're asking for it. And then the other article in Newsweek, Sealed with a Kiss, it says, we've always known that there was a gospel of Judas, which might clear some of this up. In the year 180, Irenaeus, a church father in Lyon who specialized in rooting out heresy, denounced it as fictional. The gospel was in vogue for a few hundred years, then disappeared from history until last week. It is a translation of a translation. The scribe wrote in Coptic circa 300 from a Greek original surely lost forever. This gospel tells us that Judas was Jesus' only true disciple to whom he imparted secret mystic knowledge and whom he asked, Jesus asked Judas to turn him into the Romans in order to free his spirit from its fleshly prison. The story of the manuscript resembles an Indiana Jones movie or more to the point, a Dan Brown novel. An unseen hand must have arranged for the gospel of Judas to be published while the Da Vinci Code craze still had life in it. So I get to knock out two in one shot here. It tells us nothing about the historical Jesus, nothing about the historical Judas. That, that's good. You know, it, these things come out and it frustrates me because now I'm trying to do a service and I'm thinking, well, people are going to ask me about it, so I really should address it from the pulpit. So they make me do more studies here. But well, I just got to ask you this. For professing Christians, when you were baptized, you made a statement that you were resurrected to a new life in Christ. When you went into the water when you were baptized, you were showing the world that you were dead to the old you. And when you came out, you were resurrected with Christ. And you put old and childish things away. So the question is, when we celebrate the resurrection, are you living the resurrected life? Or is your life characterized by gossip, slander, lies, bad company, anger, rebellion, unforgiveness, bitterness, addictions, or you were a slave to your past? Jesus died so you could have freedom and live the resurrected life. And then for the two times a year crowd, the ones we'll see on Christmas, after I keep saying this, you probably won't come back. No, but I'm, I want to encourage you. I want you to leave here pumped. I want you to, to chew on all the meat of the scriptures that you received here today. I, I, again, I, I don't want to pick on you. I want to encourage you. You know, you need to know that there's forces out there that are subtly going to, des to destroy or try to destroy you the faith that you have. And it's going to... They insult the Lord who bought you out of the slave market of sin. Know why you believe what you believe. 1 Peter 3.15 says to always have an answer to the faith that is in you with meekness and fear. So that's what we have to do. Don't be swayed by every new wind of doctrine. And certainly don't put salvation in the hands of a novel writer or some new spurious work that comes out in the media. Seriously, when was the last time the media, you know, all those old Bible movies, they were pretty close. Now, when is the last time the media did justice to a Bible story? It's like I, I look at them and I don't get my hopes up. I watch them and I, I just say, I wonder what silly things they're going to put in now, right? In the, the last Noah movie, there was pirates that boarded Noah's, or tried to board his boat. Or it was real weird. There's nobody left. How could there be pirates? <laughs> You know, it's crazy. 
But for those of you who don't know Jesus, he allowed himself to be spit on. He allowed his beard to be plucked out. He allowed the tar to be beat out of him and to be nailed to a filthy, dirty cross. Probably if somebody else's blood was still on that, that cross when they nailed Jesus to that cross. You know, those nails didn't hold Jesus. His love held himself to that cross because without him dying for your sins, we, well, my sins, we'd all be in a lot of trouble right now. You know, and, and he endured worse than the beatings and the physical pain, which pain is, is temporary. But for the first time in eternity, just think of this. This is the big thing, right? When Jesus was on that cross, for the first time in all eternity, before mankind, before the angels, before you know, all the stuff, Jesus had constant communion with the Father. When he received all those sins on him and died for our sins, that was the first time ever that Jesus was actually separated from God the Father, right? Think about that. That was worse than the pain. I'm, I'm certainly sure of that. So why wouldn't you take advantage of what Jesus did for you? You know, uh, it, it really takes a lot of strength to restrain yourself. Jesus could have, you know, he could have wiped out those Romans. He could have done a lot of things. You know, when somebody insults you, it's, it's so easy to insult them back. It is so hard when somebody insults you to hold it in. It is so hard to turn the other cheek when somebody slaps you. So what Jesus did was, was incredibly difficult to do, right? But if you remember anything today, remember the truth or the importance of the resurrect, resurrection of Christ. Remember, all the religious leaders over the centuries are fertilizing the ground around them. Think about Muhammad, Buddha, all the popes, all the evangelical leaders, all the king's horses and all the king's men. You know, they're all, they're all dead and they're all fertilizing the ground around them. But Jesus' tomb is still empty. Remember that. Nobody found the body, and not for lack of trying. And nobody disputes that, and the tomb is still empty. Keep that in mind. That's what we have to do. Don't be swayed by every new wind of doctrine. 